This message was recorded at the Cross United Church Outdoor Drive-In Service, so audio quality will be a little bit different than usual. If you want to find out more about our church, check us out at Cross United SFL on social media or crossunited.org. Awesome. Praise God. I love that song. I love the message of that that last song, I Will Build My Life Upon Your Love. What better foundation uh, for our lives and to just put our trust in Him and Him alone. So, so glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Danny. I'm the pastor of Cross United Church. We are a new church here in this part of South Florida that we started about a year and a half ago to help people like you and like me discover life like God has intended us to live. We believe we find life like God intended when we're brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ, when we're brought together in authentic community, and when we're sent out on the joyful mission that God has for us in the world. So we're here this morning for that. If you uh, would be so uh, gracious and kind to connect with us online, uh, you can go to crossunited.org. Uh, for our website, or you can go to at Cross United SFL, no spaces, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you would, uh, if you're on Facebook, go ahead and go to Facebook right now and just check in. There's an option there to say check in. If you start ty- typing Cross United, you should be able, to be able to check in online and just let everyone know that you're glad to be worshiping the Lord here at the drive-in this morning. And, uh, and that'll let your friends and family know uh, that you're here and get the word out and, uh, and be a blessing to them and encouragement to them as well. If you have your Bibles or your app, I want to encourage you to turn or tap to John 8, 57 through 59. John 8, 57 through 59. And as you're going there, I'm going to just pray for us. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us through your word this late part of the morning and early part of the afternoon, that you would show yourself to us as the great I am. Um, Open up our eyes, as that song has said, open up our eyes in wonder so that we can see you. And we just thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, It's not what we would have preferred a few months ago before we knew what was going to happen to be sitting in our cars. But, you know, we're grateful, Lord. We are grateful that we get to be here all in the same place at the same time. And we ask your grace upon us that you would unite us in heart and in spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In my early 20s, God called me to become a pastor. And when he called me to become a pastor, he also called me to go to graduate school or pastoral training school, uh, sometimes called seminary, and to be formally trained for pastoral ministry. Um, I grew up and was born and raised in California and um, was spent most of my life in Northern California. But the best seminary I could find was in Louisville, Kentucky. And um, when you're from Northern California and the best, I mean, West Coast, um, that Kentucky is about three and a half days away 
by Ford Focus, which is the kind of car I had at the time. But it's about three and a half light years away culturally from Northern California and from South Florida for that matter. When I was in Kentucky, I met, that's where I met Laura and uh, found out about South Florida. I'd never been to Florida, visited here, fell in love with Florida, and God called us to Florida. Um, but when I was driving out, that initial trip from Northern California to Louisville, Kentucky, I took uh, the old Route 66 down I-40 up uh, through northern Arizona, down through northern Arizona and New Mexico, and I passed just a few miles south of the Grand Canyon, and I decided maybe the only time I'm going to be in this area, or I don't know when I will be again, so I decided I was going to go and take the opportunity to drive like less than an hour north of the interstate and go and see the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is uh, the largest one of the most uh, incredible natural monuments and natural phenomena in the world. And uh, at its deepest point, it's a mile down. And at its widest point, it's like 18 miles wide. Um, it's this incredible natural chasm that was carved into the Arizona soil by the Colorado River. And um, it's it's... It's massive and majestic. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is a chasm or a canyon or a divide that's infinitely and immeasurably wider than the Grand Canyon. And what that chasm is, that canyon is, is the difference between God and everything else. Between the Creator and the creation. Um, The Grand Canyon at its widest point, or even the distance across the universe, which by some estimates is like 13 billion light years across, um, those don't even glimpse the difference between God and everything else. God is God... And we are not God. Now, this might sound either obvious to you or kind of theoretical to you, but it actually is the most important realization you could ever have. The realization that God is God and you are not God. And more importantly, where does Jesus stand on that in that relationship, in, in, in terms of that divide between creator and creation, between God and not God. That's the question and the challenge that's going to present us in this part of Scripture, John 8, 57 through 59. We're going to see this challenge of divinity, the challenge of who is Jesus really. We're going to be talking about this seventh challenge of authentic Faith, this final challenge of authentic faith that uh, we've seen throughout the Gospel of John and John chapter 8. There's this group of people who have expressed an initial sort of faith in Jesus as he's been speaking to them while, when he was in his earthly ministry. And they've, they've made this initial profession of faith. But Jesus is challenging the authenticity of their faith. And we're going to see things sort of come to a culminating point here in John 857 through 59 and we're going to see that their faith is not authentic but it's actually artificial 
Jesus and, and his hearers have been in this conversation, this dialogue. Jesus is talking with these people. And he's, he's claiming that Abraham saw his day. Now, Abraham would have lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. Jesus lived 2,000 years before us. So Jesus was 2,000 years ago, and 2,000 years before that was Abraham. And, and the Jews, they, they, they are absolutely incredulous that Jesus would say this. They think he's insane. Look what they say there in John 8, 57. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Now, some scholars say that 50 years old was considered, in some circles in that ancient world, the ideal age for a ruler. Not too old that you can't get the job done, but not too young that you haven't experienced life and you're not seasoned with some wisdom. 50 was considered the ideal age of a ruler. So they say, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. They're mocking the credibility of his claim. They're saying, you're not even old enough to be an earthly king. How can you claim to be something even greater than that? How can you be, you're not even old enough and wise enough to rule over a group of people, let alone the universe. You're not wise enough to be a ruler, let alone wisdom incarnate. Um, they're using this as sort of an obvious comeback that would have sort of presented Jesus as this ridiculous, insane person to be saying the types of things that he's saying. But what they've actually done is they've teed up, you know, that's a, a sports metaphor, either for like t-ball or golf, where they you set the ball up and Jesus is just ready to hit this one home with this sort of gut punch line. Truly I tell you, he says, in verse 58. This is a phrase found throughout the Gospel of John that um, clues us in to what Jesus is going to say being something that is uh, something you can take to the bank, something that has the authority of God behind it. Truly, truly, I say to you, literally would be amen, amen, I say to you. So, so he's, he's setting them up with this that, you know, like, it's like saying, I swear on the Bible or, you know, uh, you know, scouts honor. It's like, I am telling the absolute 100% truth. And this is what he says. Before Abraham became, I am. Before Abraham was, or before Abraham became, I am. Now in the Gospel of John, you have to understand that there's a contrast between two really important words. The word to be, which is the Greek word amy, and the word become, or to become, which is the Greek word ginemai. You don't have to remember the Greek, but just that there's this distinction between be and become that in our English Bibles we don't always notice because the same English word was can translate both. So when he says in your translation, before Abraham was, I am, what he's saying is, before Abraham became, or Ginnemai, I am Amy. Now, why is this important? Well, we see this is important because in the very beginning of the book, the first three verses of the book set up this grand canyon of, of, of difference between God and everything else that is not God. You can tap or turn to John 1, 1 through 3, or just listen. You might even have it memorized. If so, even better. In the beginning was Amy, to be, the Word. 
And the word, and the, and the word there is referring to Jesus, God the Son, before the incarnation, before he came, became a human being. In the beginning was the word, and the word was Amy with God. And the word was Amy with was God. Verse 2, he was Amy with God in the beginning. Now look at verse 3. Notice what it says or just listen. All things were created or became through him. And apart from him was not one thing that was created or became Ginnemai that has been created. Ginnemai. So there is an infinite difference between being the word and becoming creation. There's an infinite chasm between being and becoming or between God and everything else that is not God. Here we come to this grand canyon of reality. The unimaginable, uncountable difference between God and everything else. Things, you see, that are in the realm of creation, they can become. What does it mean to become? It means you change from one thing to another. It means you are, were one thing and now you're a different thing. And we see that as a virtue for creation. Why? Because a lot of times we're not what we want to be. We become more like we were supposed to be. Again, an amen from the street, but not from you all. That's okay. I, I appreciate it. We become, we change, we improve. And when you're a person, a created being, that's good. Why? Because you're not what you are supposed to be. But that can't happen with God. God is already everything and has been always and will be everything he ever can be or will be. And that is perfect and full, beautiful and good. God cannot become because God is already and has always been as good as you can possibly get. As good as you could imagine God to be, he is infinitely better than that. There is no becoming in the reality of God. There is no change. There's no mutation. Theologians call this the doctrine of immutability. That comes from the word where we get the word mutation or change. God doesn't change. God always just is. This is why in Exodus chapter 3, he revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. The living being one. In 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 Exodus chapter 3, we see that the, the people of God have been enslaved in Egypt. The people of God have been enslaved in Egypt and and God has promised to raise up a deliverer, a savior for his people. And the people would be saved by this deliverer who would be raised up and would would come into the, the people of God, the, the Israelites, and would free them from their captivity. And, and God did just that. He, he gave a young Hebrew woman a child whose name became Moses. And he was raised in the king of Egypt, Pharaoh's household, even though he was a member of the slave family of Israel. And his own biological mother, by God's good providence, ended up raising him and being his nanny. And nobody but the two of them or a few close family and friends knew 
the truth that though he was being raised as a daughter of the king or by the king's daughter as a as a as a person in the royal palace that he was also being raised by his own Israelite biological mother and she told him the story of his people she told him of the promise of deliverance and one day Moses took sides and he defended a Hebrew Israelite who was being abused and he killed the Egyptian who was abusing him And Pharaoh, always a little suspicious of Moses because he wasn't one of them, put out a a death warrant for Moses and Moses had to escape. And he, he went far away into the boondocks and into the wilderness and met a woman, a black woman, by the way, and he got married to her and he had kids and he tended his father in law's flocks and the, the, the family business. And one day while he's tending the flocks, he happened upon, in the Bible's words in Exodus 3.1, the mountain of God. And it says in Exodus 3.2 that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. And, and Moses checks out this bush that's burning, but it's not smoking. There's no, there's no incineration happening. There's flame, but no fuel, at least from the bush. And from the bush, God calls out to him and says, Moses... And Moses now knows something special is happening. He says, take off your shoes, your sandals, because you're on holy ground. And Moses does this. And whereas his mother had told him about the God of his fathers, the God of his fathers has now shown up in reality, in his very existence, in his very normal day-to-day course of his life. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hides his face because the the Lord is so glorious. And he says, Moses, I'm going to send you to my people Israel, your people Israel. And you're going to go to Pharaoh. And you're going to tell him that I'm going to liberate my people. And Moses says, well, who should I tell Pharaoh has sent me? And this is is the punchline. Exodus 3.14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. In this verse, God tells us his name. He tells Moses his name and Moses tells us what God told him. God's name is simply I am. I am being. I am life. I am goodness. I am beauty. I am glory. I am I have no capacity for getting better because I'm already as good as I could possibly ever be. And the the biblical writers, they read this and they got obsessed with it, especially Isaiah, the prophet. Almost a thousand years after Moses, Isaiah, the prophet, was reflecting on on this name of God. And God had, in fact, spoken to him. The Lord Yahweh had spoken to him. And he takes this word, this name, I am, and he talks about it all the time. Isaiah 41, verse 4, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I am the Lord, the first and the last. I am. Isaiah 43, verse 10, you are my witnesses and the servant I've chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. No God was formed before me and there will be none after me. Isaiah 48, 12 and 13. Listen to me, Jacob and Israel, the one called by me. I am, I am he. I am the first and I am also the last. 
My own hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summoned them, they stood up together. All of you assemble and listen. Who among the idols has declared these things? What God is saying is there is God and everything else is not God. And anything else you try to make into a God, the Bible has a word for that. It's called an idol. We talk about this all the time around here. Talk about the killer bees, birthday parties, ball games, brunches, boats. After 4th of July and seeing some, some posts on social media, maybe we got to add booze. We have all of these things that we think will give us the good life when we don't realize that the good life is the one who is life, God himself. So when Jesus says, before Abraham became, I am, he is saying that I am the eternal God standing before you. I am. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, I am the unchanging, unbecoming, perfect, unchangeable, good, glorious God. And I'm standing before you. Can you see me? The question is, how could the eternal, immortal, invisible, unchangeable God stand before them? Well, this is the incredible story of Jesus. Because... Back in John 1, remember we saw the Word in the beginning was with God, the Word was God, and everything else He made or became through the Word. John 1, 1 through 3. Well, just a few verses later, there's another really famous verse where it says that the Word became, ginomai, flesh, and dwelt among us. In the person of Jesus, God crossed the chasm the Grand Canyon of reality from the side of God and being and took into his person, in the person of God the Son, human nature. So that there is everything that is not God on this side and there is God on this side and standing across this uncrossable chasm is Jesus Christ who is both God and man. This is the beautiful mystery that we celebrated Christmas, the incarnation that God took on human nature. Sometimes we say God took on human skin or human flesh, but that doesn't capture the whole picture because he didn't just wear around human, human, you know, flesh like a, like a costume, like my kids play dress up. They'll put on one thing and then they're, you know, a princess or a firefighter or whatever. And then they take it off, but they're still them. They're just pretending. That's not what happened with Jesus. He truly became a human man while also remaining fully God. This is hard to understand. And so in 451 AD, you know, 400 years after the New Testament, Christians were still wrestling with this truth. And they called a council of pastor theologians together to really hash this out. And they met in Chalcedon, which is modern day Istanbul, Turkey, And they spent a long time thinking through what does the Bible teach us about Jesus. And they came away with a very short summary of the Bible's teaching that we call now the Chalcedonian Creed or the statement of of the person of Christ that was drafted 1,500 years ago. That's simply a faithful summary of Scripture. 
And and it says that one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood. He is truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body, meaning he became a human being with the mind, will, and emotions of a human being. He's coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and coessential with us according to the manhood in every way like us except without sin. He was begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer according to the manhood, one in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division or separation. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the unity. And they go on and on. I'll pause there for the sake of time. The point is this. Jesus is one person in two natures. He is one person who is both fully God and fully man. Not like you take some yellow clay and some blue clay and you mash them together and get green clay. No, he is fully yellow and fully blue without separation or division, but without humanity losing its humanity and Godhead losing its Godhead. I know this is getting deep. This is very theological. The point of this is that he came to cross the chasm so that we could be brought to God. The only one who could bring us to God is one who was fully God. But the only one who could bring men and women to God is one who was fully human. And so God the Father sent God the Son to become a human being so that he would live a perfect, sinless, obedient life under the Jewish law that God had given to that same guy, Moses, so many years before. And he lived perfectly in obedience to God's law. The, the big ten, the Ten Commandments. He, he never told a lie. He never disobeyed his parents. He never took the Lord's name in vain. He never dishonored the Sabbath. He never committed adultery. He never coveted something that belonged to someone else. And he lived in perfect obedience to the law, in perfect sinless life, in all he thought, all he said, and all he did. And though he was the only person who ever lived who didn't deserve to die, God the Father and God the Son knew the only way by God the Spirit that people like you and me could be saved was if that sinless person was crucified. And so one day he was betrayed, then he was arrested, and he was tried and unjustly convicted. And the Roman soldiers took him and they nailed him to a cross where he hung until he died. The unkillable God in the person of Jesus died. So how do they respond when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am? Well, what do they do? It says in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why would they pick up stones? Well, not just because they were angry and wanted to kill him, but because they wanted to execute him for blasphemy, for treason. Leviticus 24, 16 says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. So they thought they were doing God. They they thought they were serving God's will. They thought they were doing God's work 
by bringing the stones to throw at Jesus. But it says, Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple because his time had not yet come. Over and over, we see this truth that God has an appointed time and a number of days for each of us. This is just a side note. That no one can rob you of a single day that God has ordained for you. And no one can give you a single day that God has not given you. So rest in that, especially in this anxious season. He departs because his time hadn't come yet for him to be executed on the cross. And he fled from the stones. But Augustine said it so well so many years ago. As a man, he fled from stones. But woe to those from whose stony hearts God has fled. You see, in leaving the temple, he wasn't just escaping their attempt to execute him for blasphemy and treason. He was withdrawing the very presence of God from the temple that was supposed to house the presence of God. Ezekiel 10, 18 says, The glory of the Lord moved away from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. A temple without the presence of God is just an empty building. A church without the presence of God is just a group of people. Will his presence dwell with us? What determines whether his presence will dwell with us? What's the deciding factor? Is it our own personal holiness? Our own obedience? Is it passionate and fervent prayer? Is it intentional mission and evangelism? Is it brotherly love and sisterly love? Now hear me well, those are all critical, non-negotiable things for a healthy church. But I think what this passage teaches us is that what God is looking for in his people is faith. Faith says to God that God is the one who is God and that we are not. People of faith dwell in the presence of God because people of faith have despaired of their own capacity and they've learned to depend on God's capacity. You see, we're all born because of sin with a God complex. We're all born thinking we can get to the other side of that infinite chasm between creation and creator. We're all born thinking that creation is worthy of our deepest affection. And what faith does is faith sets aside all of those delusions about ourself and the world around us. And it says only God can save me. And God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us, to bring us back to himself. And when once we learn, once we learn that it doesn't depend on us, that it doesn't depend on our own good works, it doesn't depend on our own passion or piety, it doesn't depend on our own ability to obey or to serve him, it doesn't depend on any of that, it simply depends on his grace. If Jesus has come and he has set us free from bondage to sin and death, all we have to do is trust him. And then you know what happens? When you trust him, everything else falls into place. Your life begins to change because you're not trusting and leaning on yourself. You're leaning on the only one who's worthy of it. In 2013, 
the aerialist Nick Walenda. Maybe you watched this. I think I watched this live online at the time. Um, they strung a two-inch cable across the Grand Canyon, and he walked across it without any harness or wires or safety net. And you see him, and you can see this online. He, he has this pole. It's like 20 feet long that he's holding for balance. And he's slowly walking across the biggest canyon in our world. It's amazing. It's really stressful to watch it. Because he's walking, and you know, any single misstep, a sudden gust of wind, well, just, it's over. He crossed the Grand Canyon. And people marvel. But you know what? If you, if you actually listen to what he did, he actually didn't cross the Grand Canyon. He crossed something that's called the Little Grand Canyon. The Little Grand Canyon is a little bit north of the full Grand Canyon. And, and where the widest point of the Grand Canyon is 18 miles across, where he crossed was 1,500 feet, a quarter mile. And where the deepest part of the canyon is a mile deep, where he crossed was not nearly so deep. But it's still amazing. Hear me well. But it's not like he crossed the deepest, widest, most amazing part of the canyon. And if he crossed the Little Grand Canyon at 1,500 feet and we marvel, how much more should we marvel that the sun came and crossed the infinite chasm of reality to remain fully God and become fully man so that he could save us from our sin and he could bring us back to the Father. He gave his life. He was crucified and buried and raised from the dead so that we could trust him. Not in a feat of heroic, acrobatic, crossing a wire to him but trusting that he has reached across. He has not just reached across, he has stepped across and has come to our side of reality to bring us home. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending the Son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be saved and we could be brought back to you. I pray you would instill a deep, abiding sense of faith in our hearts. I pray that we would be a church that's full of faith. Not just generic faith, but faith in the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. People who despair of their own efforts, who lean not on their own works, but upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's been so good to worship together this morning and early afternoon. We can't wait till when we're able to gather inside, in person. I believe me, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, we don't know when that will be. We're, we're doing the summer Sundays at the drive-in for now. 
And so we'll look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. Don't forget, Thursdays, we're doing our men's Zoom call at 7 a.m. and our ladies' Zoom call at 7.30 p.m. If you want any information about the church that you don't have, if you're not on our email list, go ahead and email hello at crossunited.org. I'm going to pronounce our blessing for the road, our benediction, and then we'll all go on to whatever God has for us for the rest of the day. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. And as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he is with us always until the end of the age. God bless you. May go in peace. You're dismissed. Thank you.